so tonight we are wrapping up repentance and we're going to spend our time looking at something that we haven't really considered. Even when we walk through the Old Testament, it's something that's there, but I intentionally didn't deal with it when we were there because it's really fascinating to see um, the direct connection between how this pans out in the Old Testament and how it pans out in the New Testament. It's just, it's, there's, there's great continuity between the two. And so it's fascinating to see, and it's something that's really been a lot of new information to me, so I hope it is to you too. Um, it's, it's something that I didn't really consider in and of itself, um, and certainly nothing that I was able to search the scriptures through and, and, and could define or discuss biblically and textually. Um, and so what we're going to be looking at tonight is the things that God uses to work repentance into His people. Um, so last week we ended on God being the source of repentance. God's the one that grants us the grace of repentance. Tonight we're going to be looking at how God does that. Um, God uses several different ways to work repentance into the lives of His people. Um, I've divided it up into four major categories of things that God uses, both Old Testament and New Testament, and today um, to work repentance into His people. And so that's where we're going to spend our time tonight as we conclude this study. So diving right into it, tonight I'm going to really, we're just going to be reading passages and asking questions about the passages, and that's how we're going to be moving through tonight. So this first passage I'll read for us, it says, this is 1 Samuel, this is Samuel addressing the nation of Israel. Um, and this is after they've asked for a king, right? And so, so Samuel is calling them out for their sin and asking for a king. And the people aren't really seeing it, so he's calling them out on it. And he says to the people, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. So first things first, do we see a response of repentance in that passage? I'd say we do. We see the people um, crying out, begging that Samuel would act as a mediator on their behalf before God. Um, they're begging him to pray to the Lord on their behalf that they might not die. So they recognize that their sin has a grave consequence. The consequence could even be death. So they're understanding the severity of their sin and calling for a king, and they confess it with their mouths. They say, we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So on the surface, we see that they do have a response of repentance. And what in this passage leads them to come to their senses and recognize that it was a sin for them to ask for Saul to be a king, to ask for a king like all the other nations. In this passage, it's Samuel calling upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, right? 
And so on the surface, that doesn't look like it would, that would be something that would lead us to repentance, right? Thunder and rain. Um, the significance is that this is the wheat harvest. And the wheat harvest was the dry season during this part of the year. And so don't take this and think, oh, May usually isn't that much of a wet month, but it rained for us a little bit more this May, and so it was, it was a little bit unusual. This wasn't just a little bit unusual. This was unheard of. The people would have never seen rain their whole lives during this time of the year. Totally supernatural, totally bizarre. It'd be much more like if we said, hey, August is our hot month. We had a blizzard in the middle of August we would say, okay, something's not right, something's up. And so it was for them to get rain in the middle of this time of the year, it was bizarre, totally unheard of. So even the old timers would have never had something happen like that in their lives. So clearly this was a display of God's power. It was a miracle, God's power on display to get their attention and show them, hey, y'all have angered the Lord. I'm doing this to display my power and that leads them to repentance, right? Um, and at least on the surface, we see that they do repent. They do acknowledge their sin before God. As we move through these examples tonight, sometimes the things God uses to bring repentance into His people, they successfully work repentance into the people. The people respond positively. Other times, the people refuse to repent despite the fact that they should at whatever God is doing. So they should repent in response to what God's doing, and the text presents it in a way that surprises us that they don't repent. So just know that as we're walking through these examples. They, they repent in this example. Some of the examples we'll look at, they don't. Um, so the first thing, the first major category of things that God uses to work repentance in His people is God's power on display. So I'm going to write these on the board as we move through so we can keep track. So I'm actually going to word that differently. The power of God displayed. Okay, very similar thing in the next passage. 1 Kings 18. Um, does anybody know off the top of their heads the context for this passage? So this is when um, Elijah is at odds with the prophets of Baal, and they pretty much have a face-off on the top of Mount Carmel, right? And so Elijah says, y'all get y'all's prophets up there, and y'all call on Baal to send down fire from heaven on y'all's altar. And then when y'all get finished doing that business, why don't we get some water and we'll drench my altar here, the altar to the Lord. We'll drench it, we'll, we'll, we'll coat it with water several times, and that won't be an issue whatsoever because when I call on our God to send down fire from heaven, it's going to light this thing up. No issue. doesn't matter how wet it is, right? So that's the context of this passage. Um, Moves through, it says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people uh, may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So even all the water that they had dumped on it, 
just completely absorbed it. Um, and when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. I got the privilege when we were in Israel, we got to drive um, by Mount Carmel. We actually went to the top, but it was even cooler just driving by it because it's kind of on the south end of the mountain ranges and all around it, it's pretty flat. So it's not a huge mountain, but it's flat all around it for miles and miles. Um, and there's really not just a ton of tall trees and stuff like that. So you can see Mount Carmel from a long way off. And I was just thinking when we were driving by it, man, when the fire of God fell on that mountain to hit and hit that altar, it would have been a spectacle that would have been visible for many, many miles. So quite a display of God's power. And the people, again, respond in a penitential way, in a way of repentance. They fall on their faces and they start confessing that Yahweh, He is God. Um, so they change their tune a little bit when they see that Baal never shows up, but God immediately shows up and consumes the fire. So again, it's the power of God on display that brings the people of God into repentance. It's a sign, it's a wonder, it's a miracle, whatever you want to call it. It's, a, it's God's power on display causing His people to move into repentance, right? It's just the thing that God's using to work repentance into His people. Uh, this isn't just an Old Testament phenomenon, though. This is something we see happen in the New Testament as well. Um, and this is a passage that we looked at a little bit um, a couple weeks ago, I think. We at least read it. Um, Dad, do you mind reading that passage for us? Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Very good. So this is one of the passages where we see something that should have worked people to repentance and should have moved people to turning to God, but it didn't. The people failed to respond. And those people are Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and these cities um, that God, um, that Christ himself moved through, that Christ uh, performed miracles in and spent time in, and yet they did not repent, right? And so the picture here is Christ was there. Christ performed miracles there. They witnessed the very signs of God in the flesh, they witnessed these miracles, and yet they did not move their hearts towards God. They failed to repent. Um, and not only should that fill us with a sense of shock when we read these passages, but it's also a sense of woe towards these cities. Um, they are under a special form of judgment because they, they haven't just um, failed to recognize God as revealed through creation. They haven't just ignored God's general revelation. They've ignored God in the flesh that they've encountered face to face. They've seen the miracles. They are held responsible for 
repenting in light of the, the revelation that they've been given, and because they failed to repent, it says that it's going to be even more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and, and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah in that day, in the day of judgment, than it will be for those cities, um, than it will be for Chorazin and for Bethsaida and Capernaum. So the picture is that the signs, the miracles, the wonders of, of God worked through Jesus Christ, the miracles that he performed were intended or should have led these, these towns and these villages to repentance and sh- should have turned them towards God, but it didn't. It failed to. But once again, it's the same thing. It's God's power on display leading to repentance. And then final example of this in the New Testament And this is a bit of a two-for-one. It's going to move us into our second thing that God uses to work repentance into His people. Uh, It's a little bit of a two-for-one, but uh, same same thing going on. It says, uh, this is um, the the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, okay, if you're God in the flesh, if you're who you say you are, then give us a sign from heaven that we may know that you are who you say you are. Right? And they've already had so many signs. They should have known by now. So um, they say to him, uh, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answers them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold... Something greater than Jonah is here. So the Pharisees, the scribes are saying, we need a sign, we need a sign. Jesus says, no, you don't need a sign. You have something so much greater than a sign. In fact, think about the nation of Nineveh, right? They didn't even need a sign. All they needed to repent was an eight-word sermon from a prophet that didn't even want to be there. And this pagan, carnal nation, way worse, like the worst people that you can think of, they all repented at an eight-word sermon from someone that didn't want to be there. And y'all, on the other hand, you people, the Pharisees, the scribes, who are supposed to be the religious elite of the day, you have God in the flesh calling you to repentance, and yet you will not repent. He says, you don't need a sign. You have everything you need to repent right in front of you, speaking to you. You have something much greater than Jonah here. It's Christ himself that's there, revealing the things to them, calling them to repentance, and yet they refuse to repent, um, even when the implication is Nineveh would have repented a long time ago. So we see they, they demand a sign. Um, God says, no, you don't need a sign. You have Christ in the flesh, and uh, you have God in the flesh, Christ. And as we come to know in Hebrews, Christ is the um, final revelation of the Father. It's how he has spoken to us in the last days. And so the second way in which God works repentance in his people is through his revelation or his word, which is his revelation to us. So we see this same thing in the Old Testament and New Testament as well. The Word of God bringing people to repentance. 2 Kings 22. Um, this, again, we've, we've looked at this several times now. This is 
the story of Josiah coming to repentance. Y'all remember what brought Josiah to repentance? It's the discovery of the book of the law. They're restoring the temple. They're redoing it um, because Josiah is a pretty good king. He's trying to get things back on track, right? And when they're doing that, they come across the book of the law that's been lost. And when they do, they read it to the king. They say, Josiah, you need to, you need to look at this. This is, this is serious. You really ought to read this. So they read it to the king. How does he respond? Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So they haven't obeyed the words of the book. They didn't do what was written um, the book of the law, so the, the words of this book. Um, you get the, the idea that God's written word is what moved the king to this response of repentance. Um, he heard the words, he tore his clothes, and he led the whole nation in a total act of repentance, totally abolishing all the idolatry that was going on in the nation of Israel at the time. So complete repentance, and it all began with finding the Word of God, reading the Word of God, and that, that stirred Josiah to repentance. Um, it was the revelation, specifically the written Word of God, um, coming to Josiah that led him to repentance. I didn't put this example in there, but really, I mean, Nathan the prophet did little but take the Word of God and deliver it to David, and that led him to repentance. Um, so several examples in the Old Testament of the Word of God leading people to repentance. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 36. I want us to, I want you to see this context firsthand. This is super interesting story. Um, got Psalms, Proverbs. Um, I'll flip over to Isaiah, a couple books over. Keep flipping to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 36, starting verse 1. <clears throat> In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, so this is uh, Josiah actually and Jeremiah were contemporaries. They're about the same age. Um, of Judah, this word, um, well, well, this is after Josiah, but Jeremiah began his ministry and was growing up about the same time as Josiah was reforming the nation. Um, so in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, take a scroll and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So God commissions Jeremiah. He's been speaking through Jeremiah for many years at this point, And he commissions Jeremiah to write down on a scroll all the things that God's spoken to him, all the proclamations and oracles that God's given him. And so, I mean, that's going to be quite a task because Jeremiah's been speaking the words of the Lord to the people for many, many years. Um, so Jeremiah commissions his uh, manuensis or his scribe, Baruch, 
and his, his scribe writes the words as, as Jeremiah speaks them to him. Um, and all this takes place in, uh, in verse, verse number 5, uh, Jeremiah speaks to Baruch. Uh, and Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go there. And on the day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you, may, that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all these men of Judah who come out of their cities. So Jeremiah, like I said, he's been prophesying for many years at this point. He's got quite the reputation among the religious elite. They don't like him whatsoever because he's constantly speaking the truth to them, the word of God to them, that they need to repent, that their, their, their surface level fake um, religious practices aren't doing them any good. And so they've banned him from even coming to the temple and so he sends Baruch, his scribe, instead. And he says, you go, you read these words of God that we've written down on the scroll so that the people might repent and turn to God, right? And so that's, that's the context. Baruch does this. The people say, okay, we ought to tell the king this stuff. So then they send him to the king, and the scroll kind of passes through a couple people's hands, and it eventually comes to the king, which is where we land in verse 21. Then the king sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudai read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. So they're reading the scroll, the words of God. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And Jehudai read three or four columns. The king would cut them off with a knife, and he would throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were, was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. So total disrespect for the word of God. Total disregard for it. He burns it as it's being read to him. Total hardness of heart. And Jeremiah is quick to clue us into the fact that Instead of repenting, which was the intended goal, the intended outcome of reading this law to them, instead of repentance, they heard these words, they were not afraid, they did not tear their garments, which as we walk through the Old Testament, tearing the garments, that was one of the signs of repentance that we talk about, you know, it was, it was one of those things and that's actually what we saw Josiah do just a minute ago, he tore his garments when the book of the law was read to him, so there's quite a contrast there between Josiah, the good king, responding to the word of God by tearing his garments, and this king, um, who will not tear his garments despite hearing the words of God. So, But again, the word of God was intended to move that person to repentance. Zechariah 7.12, same thing. This is recounting, this is in the days of uh, Darius, and um, Zechariah is recounting the sins of the nation of Israel and what they've done. Um, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts um, had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Um, so they would not hear um, the words that the Lord spoke through the prophets. So once again... They should have had softness of heart, right? But instead, their hearts were diamond hard. 
They refused to turn to God despite the word of God coming to the people. Um, they refused to repent. So again, expectation or what should have happened, the word of God came, the people repent. But it didn't happen that way. The people failed to repent. So, but that is how God works repentance in his people is through the word of God coming to them. They're responsible to repent when that happens. We see the same thing in the New Testament, right? Um, we looked at this passage a couple weeks ago. Um, this is rich, rich, uh, rich man and Lazarus uh, parable that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Rob, can you read that from back there? Okay. So we get this picture, the old man's, um, I'm sorry, the rich man's in heaven, and he's, he's talking to Abraham, and he's saying, just let somebody go back, even if it's um, Lazarus, let somebody go back so that they can tell my brothers that this stuff's real, that they need to repent, that they will come to this place of torment unless they repent. And so he says, listen, listen, Abraham, if they, if you just let them go back, they will repent. Um, if they are warned. And so what's Abraham say? He says, no, they don't need somebody to be raised from the dead to convince them. They have everything they need to lead them to repentance. In fact, they already have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. He's talking about the Old Testament, right? He's saying they have the scriptures. They have the Old Testament. They have everything they need to repent. They don't if they aren't going to be convinced, if they are not going to repent um, or be convinced by these things, by Moses and the prophets, then they aren't going to, certainly are not going to be convinced should someone raise from the dead. That's not going to convince them. That will do nothing if the scriptures haven't been enough to soften their hearts. If the very revelation of God, the written word, will not convince somebody or lead somebody to repentance, then certainly somebody being raised from the dead will not lead them to repentance. Well, we see the very same thing happen with um, Jesus' resurrection, right? And the Pharisees and the Romans and people who, who, who were exposed to Christ's revelation or resurrection and yet did not repent. I mean, what more evidence would you need than the resurrected Christ in front of you and witnessing that? Um, to repent and believe, but still, even that will, was not enough for some people. So, and the reality is, 
None of this stuff would be enough for us to convince us or to move our hearts towards God were it not for the Spirit of God granting us the grace of repentance, right? So even if we were the ones that saw Christ face to face or we were the ones that witnessed um, the miracles of God firsthand um, or even as we do get to hold the revelation of God in our hands, none of that would convince us were it not for the Spirit of God. So we have nothing to thank but God's grace moving us to repentance. Um, but it's interesting as we see these things, these patterns, these, um, the, the various things God uses to work repentance in His people. Um, one part of it is it's exciting to be able to pray as we see our children exposed to the Word of God and be able to pray that God would use those things to lead them to repentance and soften their hearts. So um, it's really fascinating to see these things that God uses to draw people to repentance. Moving to the third thing, third major category of things that God uses to draw people to repentance is um, found in various places in the Old Testament, but especially in Jeremiah. Um, this passage says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So we see in the first part a call to repentance expressed as the circumcision of the heart, which again is the object of repentance in the Old Testament as we were moving through that. Um, so the call to repentance and then the, the, the motivation that is given here is a um, threat of, future, of a future outcome. And that threat of future outcome is the wrath of God coming on the nation of Judah. Um, lest my wrath burn or go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. So the motivation towards repentance in this passage is God's wrath leading people to repentance, which is the third major category, the wrath of God. And we see this, I mean, there's, there's many examples. This is clear in the book of Jeremiah, though. And this is actually that same uh, narrative we were looking at earlier with uh, Baruch writing all the words of Jeremiah on a scroll so that they could read it to the king and go to the temple and read it, right? Jeremiah's telling him, you go to the temple. I, I'm not able to go to the temple. You go to the temple. It may be, um, verse 7, that their, that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. So there is the repentance, right? Turning, that's our word, turn from their evil way. Call for repentance. Um, for, so this is going to be the motive. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against his people. So the grounds, the, the, the thing leading them to repentance that should is, yes, the reading of the Word of God, but those words written in that scroll pertain to or explain the anger and the wrath of God pronounced against His people. And Jeremiah expects that, that the reading of that and the understanding of that will lead to repentance, right? Um, and, and will cause them to turn from their evil way and plea for the mercy of God. 
So God's wrath leads to repentance. This is most clearly seen in the book of Amos, um, chapter 4. Let's go ahead and read. If you have your Bibles, um, turn with me to the book of Amos, um, chapter 4. Jeremiah, uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, wait. I lost it. (laughs) Uh, Daniel, Jose, Joel, Amos. Joel, Amos. There we go. Amos chapter 4. Again, recounting Israel's refusal to repent despite all the things that God has done to call Israel to repentance, right? And so you might expect, okay, if we're going to list the things God has done to call His nation to repentance, it might be a list of blessings and benevolence and all sorts of things that might make us feel good about ourselves so that God will call us to repentance. But that's not the case whatsoever. Instead, God lists judgments that He sent upon the nation of Israel to try to get their attention and get them to repent before his final judgment of exiling them would take place, right? And so, and one thing I want to note too, if you've ever learned a foreign language, um, you might have learned that the verbs can be conjugated or formatted in such a way that you don't need a pronoun to tell you who's performing the action. The verb itself, the way it's formatted, will tell you who's doing the action. So... For example, in English, you might say, jumped, and who jumped? You don't know unless we tack on a pronoun. So like, I jumped, or he jumped, or she jumped, whatever you want to put there. We don't know who jumped until you put a pronoun there. Hebrew is not that way at all. Hebrew, just by the way the verb Um, is formatted will tell you whether he jumped or she jumped or it jumped or they jumped. Um, And such is the case um, all throughout the Hebrew Bible. Uh, But sometimes you'll get an author who will supply a pronoun in addition to telling you who did the action by the verb. And the reason they do this is to emphasize who's doing the action. It's called the emphatic pronoun. Right, And so this is exactly what happens in um, Amos. The emphatic pronoun is I, speaking of God performing this action, God taking responsibility and claiming these actions that he does. It's emphatic. He's the one that does this to Israel. He says, I gave you, um, picking up in verse 6, I gave you, of chapter 4, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when you were yet three months through the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, 
Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, and I carried your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So here's the picture of what God has done for His people to get them to repent. He has, uh, it says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. I also withheld the rain from you. So He's given them drought. He's given them famine. I struck you with blight and mildew. He's taken away their crops. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. He's given them plagues. I killed your young men with the sword. He's, he's, he's killed them. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. They've come under the judgment of God. And yet after all this that God himself has done, um, to get them, get their attention so they won't experience God's final judgment of being exiled out of the land. They still did not return to um, God. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So even after all that God's done to get their attention and all these acts of judgment, um, all these demonstrations of His wrath that should have caused them to repent, they still didn't get it and they were still exiled out of the land. Um, but the, the, the wrath of God displayed was clearly intended to return them to God, and they, they failed in their responsibility to return to God despite that. Um, but Amos, as he's recounting these things and, and, and writing down the words of God, it's clear that the expectation uh, is you see these judgments of God on display, you really ought to repent. That's just what should naturally occur, and it didn't. Um, another example of this is Old Testament uh, example is Pharaoh, right? Um, we even saw in the Amos passage that um, there's a pattern of re referring back to the plagues of Egypt as something which, uh, which should have caused them to repent in the passage of Amos. Um, and similar thing going on in, in that story itself, the, the plagues of Egypt, right? Um, it's interesting, I'm not going to, you don't have to know this vocabulary. Um, it's really interesting to know it when you read the, the Exodus account. But the Moses, as he's writing these things down, he uses three different verbs to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, right? And they're all three translated into English the same way. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's the English translation. Um, but in the Hebrew... There's three different verbs. One is to mean to make strong or strengthen. So Pharaoh's heart was strengthened by God, or Pharaoh strengthened his heart. One is to make heavy, um, made heavy his heart, or God, God made heavy Pharaoh's heart. And then one is to make hard, um, which is the one we translated for all of them in English, is that God made his heart, his heart hard, or that Pharaoh made his heart hard. Um, but the interesting thing is this first one is the one you need to know for tonight. That's the one that's used to describe Pharaoh's reaction to the plagues and to the display of God's power and wrath against the nation of Egypt. How did Pharaoh respond? His heart was either made strong by God or he strengthened his own heart. 
And the picture is that Pharaoh would have bent the knee to God at a certain point. Any rational person would have bent the knee to God at a certain point after seeing God's plagues on display. They should have got his attention, got him to repent. In fact, he had to strengthen his own heart to resist giving in to God and obeying God, or his heart was strengthened by God to resist God and to resist giving in to obeying God. Um, It's interesting. I taught uh, in Sunday school this morning, the kids, we talked about the magicians. The Egyptian magicians were able to copy a couple of Pharaoh or the, the, the plagues that came to the nation of Egypt. And after a couple of them, they couldn't copy the plagues anymore. And they said, Pharaoh, you're dealing with God. This isn't, this isn't fake. This is real. This is, this, is, this is legit. You ought to listen to these people. They know what they're talking about. You're dealing with the power of God here. So even the magicians got it. They saw that these plagues um, meant that God meant business. This was the real deal. Led them to um, even tell Pharaoh, like, you really ought to take this seriously. So the plagues of the Exodus also should have caused repentance in Pharaoh's heart, um, but it didn't. And uh, the reason I bring that example up is because in the New Testament, we see uh, the same thing going on in the book of Revelation. So, so very, um, very similar thought. Book of Revelation is the um, climactic book of God's judgment. It's the day of the Lord, complete destruction of the earth um, as God creates a new heaven and new earth, redeeming all creation from the effects of sin. And... In doing that, as we know, um, as we read through that book, God pours out many plagues and many judgments on the earth, and many of those reflect the plagues of Egypt in such a way that the Egyptian plagues actually point forward to the final plagues of God. Um, But in a very similar way to Pharaoh's hardening of his heart and failing to repent at the plagues, we see... Uh, in the book of Revelation, recording a very similar event in the people of the earth. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols or gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So, we get the idea that Despite the plagues, these plagues should have. That's the expectation. The, 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 the author here has given us a little bit of a surprise here, right? Like this should have caused repentance. But despite these plagues, all of them failed to repent. They did not repent. They did not repent. Same thing a couple, um, several chapters later. Um, they were scorched by the fierce heat, they, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. So same picture as Exodus, we get plagues coming down from God, and yet they did not repent or give Him glory. So despite all these plagues, they did not repent. Final example from the book of Revelation. The fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness, um, very similar to the darkness of the ninth plague of the Exodus. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, but they did not repent of their deeds. So, same thing. 
God's judgment, His wrath, should have moved them to repentance. And it's a shock that they experience all this judgment and all these plagues, and yet they harden their heart and they will not repent. Um, So judgment is something that God uses Old Testament and New Testament to work repentance into the lives of His people. Um, when they and, and then when people don't repent and respond of, uh, in response to God's judgment, it's it's shocking and it's surprising, and they're still held accountable for not repenting despite seeing God's judgment. Uh, final thing um, is a bit more light than lighthearted than that, and it's God's kindness leading to repentance. Um, Isaiah forty four twenty one. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So we get up top here, this whole section, <clears throat> claiming that um, Israel will not be forgotten by God. God will be faithful to forgive their sins and remove their transgressions. That's listed as, and then, then he calls them to return to God. And then the grounds for that is God's promise of redemption or the fact that he has redeemed them. So, and again, these are kind of broad categories, um, but God's kindness or God's grace um, leads to repentance. Again, another passage from Isaiah. Abby's reminded me as she's been moving through that, that Isaiah is just such a good book of going back and forth between the judgment of God on his people and then the grace of God on his people. Um, and Isaiah it just goes back and forth between those and reminds those, um, presents those two realities. And uh, we've certainly seen that as we've been moving through this study. We've seen several times of Isaiah calling people to repentance and the judgment and all these things. And then he's quick to remind us of passages with passages like this of God's grace and kindness. Um, Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? That he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon So why should people repent? Why should they return? That being our Old Testament word, um, shub. They should return because God is compassionate and He is the kind of God that will abundantly pardon. That's who He is. That's His character. So again, we return to the idea of returning to God, repenting towards God because of God's character and and. Um, relenting of disaster and forgiving and being compassionate and abounding in steadfast love. Um, and then final passage on this, New Testament passage, which is really where I get this word from, the kindness of God leading to repentance. Romans 2.4. Um, and this is actually another um, two-for-one example, really, um, because as we know from 
moving through this on Sunday mornings, this is in the context. Um, this is in the context of God's judgment being revealed from chapter one. God's judgment being revealed against all ungodliness, and then turning that to um, the people who are quick to condemn sin while they have their own sin, um, who are who are warned in chapter two. And so it's in the context of God's judgment being revealed. And it says, um, Romans 2, verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I couldn't help but think of that passage we looked at in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, where it talked about the Jews who were saying, um, who were pointing to the people who were killed off by Pilate and their blood was mixed with sacrifices, or the people where the Tower of Siloam had fallen on them and they died in a totally unnatural way. And the Jews were saying, oh, we must be good with God because we, we weren't killed off in these weird freak accidents that clearly are a sign of God's judgment. No, we're experiencing God's grace right now. Therefore, we must be good with God. And Jesus is quick to say, no, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I get the same picture here in Romans of people quick to say, presume on God's grace and say, oh, well, I'm experiencing God's patience and forbearance. Therefore, I'm good with God. And Paul says, no, this is a season of God's kindness and forbearance, but it's a season for you to repent because all of this wrath, this picture of wrath that I've painted for you is all being stored up and it's like water's being held back from a dam that's about to burst. And this season is just a season of God pausing or a temporary respite of this wrath that's about to fall on you. Um, and that's exactly what these words forbearance and patience um, they're temporary words. They're a temporary holding back or pause in something. Uh, in fact, if I'm pulled up the BDAG, um, define that second word, patience, as uh, the state of being able to bear up under provocation. So, the picture is that God is being provoked by the sins of mankind and yet he's bearing up temporarily um, in order to allow a season of repentance. Um, and so, yes, it's the kindness of God, but it's, 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 God's, it's in the context of God's judgment being temporarily withheld. That's his kindness and that's his grace um, leading towards repentance. So, it's, uh, you know, it's not the toleration of God towards sin or the acceptance of God towards sin. He doesn't accept sin or tolerate sin. It's just a temporary forbearing of the judgment that sin deserves in order for people to repent because God's so gracious that He allows a temporary season for people to repent, though they don't deserve it. So the kindness of God. Um, so power of God leads to repentance. Word of God leads to repentance, the judgment of God leads to repentance, and the kindness of God leads to repentance. The thing to note about all these is it ties back to what we talked about last week. They all come from God. All throughout the scripture, the picture is point, or painted that God is the source of everything that motivates people towards repentance. And once again, if we ever repent, 
we can only thank and praise God for it. That's all we can do um, because it's not of ourselves in any way, shape, or form at any level. Um, final thoughts on repentance, um, specifically from tonight. Uh, you know, we've the nation of Israel was called uh, to teach their children and their grandchildren the works of God that they had experienced, all the things of the Exodus, the power of God on display. And they were to do that so their children would hold fast to the words of God and would not walk away from following after God. And so as we have examples of God's power and God's provision in our lives, we ought to be teaching those things to our children in hopes that God would use that to grant them repentance. Same thing with the Word of God. We ought to be feeding our children the Word of God so that uh, in hopes that and in prayer that God will use His Word to draw them to repentance. And then the wrath of God. You know, as we move through chapter 1 of Romans, it, the wrath of God is so clear in our society right now. It's ridiculous, and our children are going to be confronted with that over and over again. And so we ought to be quick to teach them that and to show them the things that are going on in the world right now are God's wrath being poured out against mankind in many ways and explain that in hopes that God will use that to lead them to repentance and, and reveal to them these things. And then, of course, the kindness of God. We are constantly, um, constantly being overwhelmed by God's grace in so many ways. Um, and so recognizing that in our own lives, um, but then also for our children and, and showing them those things and the patterns of God's grace in our lives is, is tremendously helpful and beneficial to them. And um, we'll hopefully be used by God to bring them about to repentance. So I pray that we would be found faithful in all those things. We would be found faithful in knowing this doctrine of repentance, practicing it, bearing fruit that keeps with repentance. Um, this last slide I put up here, if you want to study more into this doctrine, um, a really, and if you're looking for a challenge, I guess, um, the book of Hebrews is a great place, um, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 12. We haven't really dealt with it much. We talked about in the Old Testament um, times when it became too late to repent. And that idea is very much so elaborated in the book of Hebrews in those passages. Um, and if I were to make a, a list of the top ten most challenging passages of the New Testament, those two passages would definitely be on it. So they're challenging passages, but they're well worth spending time in and digging and trying to flesh out and understand what they're teaching about the doctrine of repentance. So it would be a great way to start um, if you have time this week to, to start and meditating about repentance and working it into your life. Um, and then I start or end with this verse that I read when we first started about Christ sending out His disciples. Uh, it says, Then He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So my prayer is that as we've learned these things about repentance, we don't just um, practice them ourselves. I pray we do start with that and we practice repentance and we are the people that are repenting continually. But I also pray that we carry this 
um, repentance and pro proclaim it to all nations. And we are able to participate that in however God sees fit for us to. Um, but I pray that we're equipped with a good biblical understanding of it um, and that we would be faithful with the knowledge that we've been given on this doctrine. Um, so, Brother Joey, can you close us with a word of prayer?